Hi, good evening, everyone. So we are diving into the topic of self-diagnosing tonight. Um, yeah, is it helpful? Is it beneficial? Is it something that we can do, something that we should do? Or is it actually quite worrying? Is it provoking anxiety? Colin, what do you think? Well, I actually really like the subject matter because I think that if we consider the basis of how we sort of understand or get some knowledge on anything, it's split into several different areas. So the first area that we're looking at really is we're looking at our experience. You know, what's our experience? Why do we actually choose to diagnose? Why are we looking for a diagnosis? So what's our experience of something? The next is that what are the reference points that we are using to get a diagnosis? So there are numbers of different reference points. And those reference points were traditionally, they used to be a physician, a doctor. Um, but those things have changed. They've changed quite substantially. So the next the question for me around this is that what or who do we trust with regard to the diagnosis that we're, we're looking for? And also, why are we looking for those diagnoses as well? And then the third thing, I think, in the area is that how we infer how we come to begin to understand a bit more about ourselves to understand the situation that we're actually in so for me there's three different elements here and these elements we actually use on a daily basis on an ongoing basis to discover things about the world okay so we have our own experience of the world um and the reason this is important is because why you know sometimes we want to get a diagnosis and we know that something isn't right. We've got to feel that something isn't right. So our experience The next step is that I also want to also understand what really or who are the sources, why, where are the... I think just to say, I think tonight Colin has a little bit of technical difficulties, so he might have to take his video off later on just so that we can preserve the sound quality and so just in case you're joining live tonight or you are watching this back on youtube this may be why that suddenly he is no longer appearing in the video part of it but hopefully when he joins back i'll ask him to take the video off while we're waiting to him for that to happen i'll also quickly jump in as well just to say I really agree with Colin where we have to make the decision on what the diagnosis is, how to identify, how to um, kind of think about what do what condition do we have? Is it normal? Is it abnormal? That's all very, very important to think about. And who to trust? Is it our intuition? Is it our instinct? Is it ourselves? Or is it something that we can find on Google, something that we can find on an online searching platform, or is it the doctors that we meet? Um, Colin, welcome back. I can see they join us. Um, I'll just explain to everyone that tonight you might have a bit of te technical difficulties and you may want to take your video off. Thank you. Um, what I find very interesting within this whole area of self-diagnosis is the, the element of a patient and being a patient and the requirement for the diagnosis, but also the element of being a, or which sources we go to, and which sources we actually trust as part of this process. So for me, there's kind of like, there's, there's these two parameters involved. The first parameter is that the reason why, you know, why do I need a diagnosis on something? What is the reason for this? Quite often, a lot of the patients that I come across 
like to have a diagnosis. They want to, you know, they know something's not right. So I have a, 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 a cough or and I have this ongoing cough that's there again and again and again. And it's kind of phlegmy. And someone turns around to me and says, you know, well, you know, you should go and get checked out. And I say, well, it's just a, a, a phlegmy cough. Why do I need to go get this checked out? We need to go to someone that knows something about it. So I Google it and they say, you know, what color is your is your phlegm? And so is it brown? Is it yellow? Is it green? Is it clear? And so suddenly you've got this kind of this ability to diagnose rather than actually communicate with someone. You can actually come to a position where you go, actually, this is quite useful because I've got brown phlegm, which means there's blood in it. I need to go and see someone really, really quickly. So as a diagnosis and as a, a tool, I think it's very, very useful to actually have something where you can actually go and, you know, understand the symptom of what's happening to you and get a label associated with it. And for me, that's a very good thing. And I think it's very, very positive. However, I think that for symptom-based things, like phlegm, like other conditions that you're presented with, like coughs or colds or, you know, skin conditions and stuff like this, I think that this the first level of, of diagnosis where you get the symptoms on the surface is very useful where you can actually research yourself. The thing that causes me the problems is when we start to get an over-investigation or diagnosis, or we start to use sources that can't be trusted. And I think that then starts to lead to problems. Does this make any sense, Stanford? It does. And I really like you using the word patience, because I think I've shared here before where patient by the definition of the word from I think it's Latin roots is someone who's suffering, once who's suffered. So, you know, we are talking about people from a position where they think they're hurting for something, they are suffering from some sort of ailments or anxiety or worries or something. There, there's a point where these urges of finding out what is happening to them start, which is a place of pain and hurt sometime. And I think in the process of understanding yourself and why these are happening, I think one of the very important thing, which you talked about before is no pain, no pain. I think very important to find out what is going on, but at the same time, not to cause additional issues on top of it. Because I think the process of self-diagnosing from Western sense, which is kind of like putting into a search engine in, on, on the internet or ask about your friends and family, sometimes can be quite anxiety provoking. So I did very, very similar thing to Colin said just now, because in preparation of this uh, podcast, I was uh, searching on one of these uh, symptom checker online. I just put my age in and I woke up, there's a little bit of mild headache somewhere. I was like, okay, I just put headaches in, this is my symptoms. Uh, and then the, the whole list of like about 15 type of headache comes as like, it's the left side, it's the right side, it's the front is behind my eyes. It's like a band, da, da, da. I was like, you know what? I'm having a headache. I don't know what headache it is. I just put severe, severe headache it is, is one of the options. And a, five, a list of five things came up. The first one's influenza, which kind of is it appropriate. Is you know, the flu season at the moment uh, as we're talking. Second one's migraine, which probably is likely going to be the cause. The next one's acute sinusitis. I was a little bit sniffly. Again, it's a uh, flu season. So maybe the possibility... 
The next two is a little bit more worrying. Stroke, cerebellar hemorrhage, which means I don't have a part of my brain that isn't working because there's no blood to it, it's ischemia, or there's a big bleed inside my brain. So I think I think the problem of this list is, is not that it didn't give me the right option, because most likely it's migraine. The other two is likely because of the season, it's flu season, I'm happy with sinusitis. The problem is the last two is really worrying. And I think naturally in our mind, we kind of tend towards, I think it's migraine, but what, what about if it's a stroke? Actually, I didn't walk quite well this morning. Could it be that? Could it be because I have a bleed in my brain? I think, I think it's that part of almost like human nature where we want to think about, or at least consider the worst case scenario, sometimes really, really provoke anxiety. So I think one of the caveats that I'm gonna say very earlier on is self-diagnosing can be really good, but at the same time, it can also be very anxiety provoking. So, so really what you're saying is that self-diagnosing is a tool to aid our experience. We experience that something's happening, like I've got a headache, and it's a way to help us to understand ourselves. But because we're doing it by ourselves, we're, we're actually having to, it, it, which is an amazing thing, because we're actually taking control, we're taking power of the situation, and we're also taking responsibility, which is a, a massive, massive thing. So rather than being passive, it really is something where you're actually being dynamic to question, you know, what is going on with myself? So on the one hand, it's, it's, it's you're looking to correctly comprehend a situation. You want to feel empowered you want to know something you want to solve it for yourself um and, and there's also a sense of relief when you know what you're dealing with however it also comes with a number of other things it comes with because there are so many variables involved because there isn't the possibility to interact with another human being when self-diagnosing you're coming you're going from a reference point and it's your interpretation of that reference point that becomes quite interesting because it depends on your state of mind and your kind of mind when you're interacting with it. So let's say, like you said, you, you were looking at this list and you were just kind of, as you were looking at it, you were going down it and you were just like, oh, stroke. And there's a silence because you kind of, do you dismiss it? Do you just kind of go turn around to everyone and go, look, I, I think I've had a stroke. I, I, you know, I don't know what to do. I, I, because it happens, you know, this thing kind of happens quite a bit. People have this experience where what occurs is they make this connection with the self-diagnosis, then they put that diagnosis onto themselves, they take the label of that, and it becomes quite difficult because there's an experience, there's a memory, there's also a huge imagination that comes in as well. Oh my goodness, what am I going to do? What I mean, how am I going to, what, what's going to happen? You know, do, do, do you see what I mean, Stanford? So I think I think what you're doing is we're beginning to build out these parameters. What I'd like to investigate a little more is the not just the positive areas of self-diagnosis, but also the not so positive areas, the kind of the areas that we need to watch out for. Because I think that when when we have self-diagnosis that puts us in a position and you as a physician and i know you say that as a physician as a doctor an obstetrician and a psychiatrist you've you've worked in all these different fields in ayurveda i remember studying the charaka samhita and in the opening of the charaka samhita it says there are certain people that you shouldn't take on as patients and i was thinking hang on a second you shouldn't take people on as patients and it's those people that won't be influenced by you 
almost it appears that they know more about their condition than you do. And it means that there's a there there becomes a strange dynamic between the patient and the practitioner. Remember, the Charakas meter is a very old text. And so it's talking about this dynamic between the patient and the physician. And so I find that interesting because you must have come across that a bit yourself. Yes, I was just going to say when you were pausing, saying that who are you not going to take on as your patient, I was always going to jump in and say doctors, don't take doctors in as your patients, which in some way kind of is what you said is, I, I think there is a kind of like a doctor's own saying that we we are the worst patients sometimes because we learn these things, we practice these things, we we know how to re research academic papers. Actually, in some way, we do become our own worst patients because maybe because this will have too much knowledge, we have too much imagination. We also seen too much the the um, the fear sometimes or the anxiety is really really quite difficult and also make it quite difficult for us to kind of be a little bit more open to listening to other people's opinions because we have such a strong one ourselves. Um, but almost kind of going back to the beginning journey of the, being a doctor, like kind of just explain where they come from a little bit because I think it's also quite relevant. There's something actually quite well known called the medical student disease. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it. Um, it's a yes. form of... Hmm? I've, I've heard of medical student disease. Um, and, and medical student disease is very, very interesting. Carry on. <laughs> uh, so, uh, kind of uh, apparently a, not, a type of nosophobia so is like a disease phobia, illness, anxiety disorder, kind of like a health anxiety in general. I personally have suffered it before, and I'll give you the scenario, which is you know, as a medical student, we don't always live the healthiest lifestyle. Sometimes we go out and have fun, and you know, we don't sleep that all that well because we have fun the night before. I came home quite late, so obviously go to lectures and like you know, on with two cups of coffee and things like that. So here I am, uh, I remember I was in my second year, because this is like peak, usually a second year when it's clinical, slightly going to, you know, you pass a normal physiology, we start talking about all the pathology stuff, uh, and it's the endocrine, endocrineology lecture, so we're talking about the thyroid. Here, the lecture is really amazing, start talking about what happened when the thyroid, thyroxine, the thyroid hormones increasing, all these palpitation diarrhea, feeling very uh, agitated sometime, hot intolerance, and me sitting here with my coffee thinking, oh, I'm feeling a little bit agitated this morning. My I can start to feel my heart racing a little bit, feeling a bit warm. Oh, yeah, maybe yeah, maybe there was a bowel, some bowel issues as well. Um, do I have hypothyroidism? Not completely disregarding that, actually, the night before I went out and, you know, having lots of coffee and probably not proper lunch and dinner and breakfast the, the, on the day. And then obviously, then we talk about hypothyroidism, which is when the thyroxine is low. And it's like, oh, you have to do your lavagey, feeling tired, can't really, uh, always sleeping, gaining a bit of weight. And, it's like, and then here on the other side of the lecture hall, it's like someone else like, that may be me. It's a really, really common thing because we always try to kind of almost identify what we're having as part of what's been presented to us. Right. And I can, you can imagine as the year goes on, we start going to mental health, like anxiety or sometimes bowel problem, like IBS, you eventually got to the topic of hypochondria. And then we're all sitting there. It's like, that's what we have. Because every time we have a lecture, we have a new disease. <laughs> but, but this is actually, for me, this is one of the most interesting things. And, and, and this is what I discovered, training people to be therapists, is that um, it's super interesting, especially when you get to the pathology area. 
and not just the Western pathology, but also the Eastern pathology as well, is that we tend to self-diagnose. We tend to attach onto these different ideas. This is why I think that the memory and the imagination is quite interesting when we're looking to understand ourselves because diagnosing is all about understanding ourselves. And self-diagnosing is looking to understand the situation you're in a little bit better. And so almost when you're investigating, you're learning and you're growing, you're starting to, you don't know what you don't know. And so when you're presented with these different ideas, it, 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 you suddenly, you, you latch onto them. You think, well, actually I have a regular bowel movement. I, you know, I have, I've been, you know, my, you know, I've been passing gas in, in several directions in various different ways. I feel bloated in my abdomen. I, I you know, I feel this, I feel that. And, and suddenly it's just like, there's a, a panic that sits in. Now, this is in a situation where we're training people to be professionals. But imagine if you didn't have the support around you. Like imagine Stanford, if you didn't have the support of your medical team around you, you know, it, it, who, you know, turn around and just go, Stanford, you're on, you just drunk two, two cups of coffee. You don't have hypothyroidism. You're just manic. You know, so you, they, there is a, a kind of this rationale. Imagine if you don't have the support around you, you're left guessing. And also you're left to your own devices with regard to, oh my goodness, is it this? Oh my goodness, is it that? Oh my goodness, is it the other? And so for me, I think this is kind of interesting because it, how do we clearly comprehend? How do we bridge the gap between the knowledge that we're acquiring and we're growing and we're understanding ourselves with? How do we bridge that gap between that point and the investigation we're making on ourselves and also the understanding about what's going on with us and what's normal and what's not normal. It's very interesting that you're saying this because I had someone who said, you know, I'm, I'm having a panic attack. I, I, I'm having, I'm, I'm feeling, I'm feeling very, very, very anxious indeed. And I said, well, what are you about to do? I'm about to get on stage and I'm about to present to everyone. I said, you have butterflies in your stomach. Yes. So this is completely normal. So I have a the same thing every time I go and present as well. They looked at me and said, "It's normal. It's completely normal." So if you if you didn't feel this, you didn't care about what you were doing. Oh. So I think you know this idea of self diagnosing and also putting labels on things. It's good to know that we have this, but what's the context? What's the situation of it? And I think that physical diagnosing which is what you discussed earlier, is actually much easier. You know, you've got a series of diagnoses, which are quite physical. Okay, you can kind of pinpoint them, you know. Is this happening? Is this happening? Is this happening? But when we start to look at sort of deeper diagnosing, mental diagnosing, so like there's a lot of diagnosing going on on TikTok at the moment and on Instagram at the moment with regard to ADHD, you know, there's all this diagnosing that's happening. And is it that what's happening is that everyone's ADHD? Or is it that what's happening is that we're being given certain things that we can all relate to and go, well, actually, that's me. That, that's exactly what I'm like. So I'm trying to understand all this because I think what it's doing is it's creating a lot of confusion. And the question is, for me, who do we trust within this? And who do we trust with regard to 
our interactions and why are we creating those interactions? I completely agree. I think it's not only to kind of correctly identify what's normal, what's abnormal, but also at, at the same time, it's also about correctly identifying the symptom itself. The example that you gave about panic attack, sometimes we see it in our own patient, which is in the mental health service, and they'll be coming to us saying, I'm having a heart attack. I'm having a really bad heart attack. I'm really about to die. And, and, and the process at that point would then be is like actually identifying what is the symptoms you have feeling of heart jumping up and down is not the most typical of heart attack issues when we can do all the investigations to make sure that it's all okay but actually at the end of it we find out it's actually panic attack you're having anxiety issues so that's also that layer of it because i think we 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 open today's session with the with the with the premise of we are doing self-diagnosing because we want to understand ourselves, we want to learn more about ourselves. I think sometimes there's also a slightly different angle why we're doing self-diagnosing, especially in the ones that I see as well. I think um recently there's lots of news about the healthcare system, about strikes, about um, you know, staff issues and things like that, especially after the pandemic. There are a lot of worries about access to healthcare, you know, access to appointments, outpatient, general practice, and so on and so forth. Sometimes there's about anxiety of not being able to get the medical health that you want to get to. Right. And there's there's also within this, you don't mind me interrupting, there's a, a just before you continue, there's also there's it appears to me, uh, and, and I, I'd like to give a case on this in a minute, that there appears to me to be an undermining of confidence in health professionals. And, and I and I want to come back to that in a, in a second. Just so sorry for interrupting. No, no, no. That, that's, that's what a conversation is like. <laughs> you can interrupt anytime. Um, so that's that part of the worries. Sometimes that's also about embarrassment about the symptoms as well, because there's certain health issues also especially mental health issue unfortunately i have to say there are stigmas attached they want to kind of not tell anyone about it including the doctors so there's a little bit of fear embarrassment almost shame about these diagnoses and sometimes actually i see this quite a lot about reassurance they don't want the diagnosis to be true they want to just kind of google instructions like oh it's nothing to worry about you don't need to see anyone you don't need to do do anything to deal with this so i think the starting point where this self-diagnosing is also quite important because if you come from a place where you're already very worried very anxious very fearful um sometimes it also kind of lead the outcomes a little bit as well so anyway i'm going to give colin you go back to what the example you want to give us the example is a bit, a bit of a tricky one actually it's it's in you know it's, it's in a in newspaper today and it's it says you know the headline is is, is like bungling medics wrongly assumed diseases symptoms with covid jab side effects and so what we have is we've got a the news, the setup of a news article that people are reading, people are looking at these sources of information, and they're being swayed by those sources of information and saying, well, these people don't know what they're doing anyway. No one knows what they're doing. And you go into the article more and more, what you see is that you, you have the person who was actually was a nurse practitioner themselves was actually seen by another nurse practitioner who said there was nothing to worry about. It's just, you know, it's just it's just this, this and this. It's the effect of the Pfizer vaccine. And, you know, you'll be absolutely right as rain and, and, and nothing wrong, with you, you know, nothing wrong with you at all. And, you know, it, you, you get, you, after after waiting a little while, it goes for a second opinion. And, you know, they, they said, well, actually, it might be a prolapsed bladder or it might be this or it might be that. And so what's happening is that there seems to be this 
might be, might be, it could be this or it could be that, almost from the points of reference that we're looking to, to be our reference points that are very stable. And traditionally, a, a medics, you know, is there to go through, to uphold life, to go through the, and I do these tests to, to find out what, what actually is going on with me. They've got access to all this machinery. They've got access to all this other stuff so that I can actually have scans. I can have all these other bits and pieces. And so what we have is we've got these cases that are appearing again and again in the media, which are actually undermine, undermining the professionalism of the medical professional that we've got. And I've had difficulty with this because I think everyone makes mistakes. I really do. But I think that at the moment, what we have is we find, find ourselves in a very, almost a Wild West situation. We have insurance companies and other medical AI companies that are developing platforms where you can, you know, you can, you can have checkups done, you can have everything tested, you can get access to a doctor immediately, you can get all these other bits and pieces very, very fast indeed. We've got that on one side, but on the other side, we've also got something quite difficult, which is actually, who do we trust? You know, oh, are you a doctor? Oh, are you this? Are you that? It, you know, who are you basing your information on? Where are you basing your information? And I find this very, very interesting because I also find how we engage with that to correctly comprehend or how we engage in it to misunderstand things. So I have a, a person that's close to me in my family who has uh, incredible tremors in the body. And I've consulted with you about this, actually. And within this, they refuse to go and see any medical professional at all, but have found an online source that says that it's nothing to worry about. And they're so happy with this. The rest of the family, all of us, are sitting there and just going, well, we really think you should go to a medical professional and we should get you, well, I can't do that. You know, it's the, I can't, it's the end if I do that. I, I can't do that. I don't trust them. I don't trust them at all. They don't know what they're doing. Have you, un, have you know this? Do you know that? Do you know the other? So we start to begin to understand the person's mind. We start to understand how they're engaging with themselves, what they're protecting, how frightened they are of facing the reality of the situation that they're actually in. And quite often there's a huge amount of fear involved. Sometimes it's the best thing to do is to go and get checked out, completely checked out. Go and see someone, go through it all. If it makes sense and it's very clear, it makes sense. On the other side of that, I've seen absolute disasters where people have had every test known to mankind and still no diagnosis, nothing at all. So I've seen both ends of these spectrums and I've actually seen with no diagnosis and every test known to mankind, I've actually seen the situation get worse and worse and worse and worse for the person and no one knows what to do about it. So it, it becomes quite interesting. Does that make sense, Stanford? Yes. And um, as you were saying, I was thinking the one, the motivation behind all these um, testing available is definitely very interesting because as I was 
do my research for this time. I, I found a website that's very good. Talk about how self-diagnosis can be problem, and what what can be offered, what what should be, uh, what problems does it cause. And then at the very very end of the web page, it starts promoting uh, private health insurance or private health organizations. Like ah okay, so I'm not I don't trust the information that I get. But sometimes I think when in, you're in the situations where the other party is motivated financially by you going to them for help sometimes it can cause problems in, 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 in the trust in the relationship itself, right? You know, are they doing all these tests because they needed to? Are they doing all these tests because they wanted to make more money? Are these tests relevant? Are these tests actually going to be okay? Um, just for example, because you brought up the example of ADHD earlier on, you know, I have worked in the, um, child and adolescent psychiatry previously, and I work specifically in the team called neurodevelopmental team. So we look after children um, who may or may not have diagnosis of um, ADHD, so attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or some autism spectrum disorder. In order to diagnose a child uh, or an adult with ADHD, we actually have to go through a whole battery of tests and uh, questionnaires, informations and reports. So we have to gather information from the parents, we have to gather information from the child, we have to gather information from the school environment and sometimes other professionals if they are involved, such as speech and language therapists, because they may be a challenge in their speech. We may have to talk to occupational therapists because they might be oversensitive um, sensation-wise, they have to have special adaptation. And then from all these reports, questionnaires, and then we have to see the child, the child with the parents a lot of the time. Sometimes we have to even go to school visits just to see what the environment is like, or at least get a report from third party. Um, and these processes might have to be repeated more than once before diagnosis can be given. And exactly as you said, it is, can be very frustrating because is not guaranteed at the end of this process, you will get a diagnosis of ADHD. Sometimes mm -hmm. the child and the family will come actually actually your child doesn't really meet the criteria of ADHD. It may just be environment, it may be the personality, it may be the tendency of the child, so on and so forth. And that I really appreciate can be a very frustrating experience. Especially when we know that something's wrong, because often we're going for a diagnosis because we know something's wrong. Do you see what I mean? So in fact, you may know that you don't have the attention that you think you should have or you don't hit the criteria, but yet within the parameters set by another authority, you don't meet those parameters entirely. And so where do you where do you fall in that gap? There seems to be a gap between you being okay or you meeting that criteria and you falling through the cracks in that gap as well. And it's not just with ADHD, it's in lots of other different areas as well. So it, it, it's it's not, and I think what you're saying is that it's really not a simple, you know, 10 point list to you being ADHD, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it's, is it, is it a fad to normalize what is abnormal or is it just that we're all abnormal? I mean, and, and you know, does it help me if, if I know, if we take something like dyslexia, um, you know, dyslexia is very interesting and from my own perspective, I, I didn't realize, I didn't know I was dyslexic. I just thought I was a little slower than other people, you know, but it didn't stop me in my life. It didn't, you know, I, I, I had the same parameters as everyone else with regard to exams, with regard to lots of different things. And it was only in my late forties that I was diagnosed completely dyslexic. And it was a real relief because I thought actually I was a bit sort of wasn't fast enough. 
So in one way, not having a diagnosis meant that I had to work harder than everyone else. I do also wonder when you talk about comparison is you, you feel like you're slower than everyone else. Where did that comparison really comes from? Because like your example of the children thinking, oh, I should, or the parents or sometimes the teacher may think, oh, they should be able to focus a little bit more. Where where's, where does that comparison draw from? Because I, th- I take my own example when you talk about your dyslexia is I my mother tongue is actually Chinese. I, I don't go into an English speaking country at the time. So actually, when I've come to this country and have to study, I have to learn extra hard as well. But my parameter, parameter is that I, English is my second language. So me learning extra hard and putting extra time into and effort into studying is given. In some ways, like, do I let that comparison slow me down in a, in a sense? Or do I give more expectation to myself, less expectation to myself? That is something that I have to kind of contemplate for our life. It's like, well, so, so a lot of the time, and you know this, this before where everyone's talking about like a common cultural phenomenon or pop cultures or pop reference or something in, in the course. And I'd be like, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. So then I, at that point, I have a choice. Do I feel embarrassed about it? Do I feel shame? Do I feel guilty? Do I start Googling excessively so I become an expert in the area? Or just like, actually, it's not part of you know, me growing up is not part of me. So I just accept this. I, I can appreciate what you guys are saying, but I don't understand it. Oh, good. So so what you're, what you're saying here is is, is actually fascinating because it, it means that we're having these reference points between each other about what, what it is to be normal. And when we don't feel normal, we're looking for a diagnosis, which gives us an advantage or helps us in a particular way or explains to us our experience of what we're thinking. Yes, and it's all relative. And I, I guess in some ways, the expectation that you want to be just as good as the other person. So when we start to look at diagnosis as being hurtful or not hurtful or helpful, there's a line with regard to it, which is where if we get the diagnosis, it becomes helpful, but then what then? What's the next thing? There's a real relief when we know, let's say we're dyslexic or we know we're a particular way. And it's helpful because it helps us to begin to know ourselves. But when we have a diagnosis or how do we attach onto that diagnosis so strongly that it actually influences our life more than it actually should do. So it actually becomes an excuse for us by holding on to that diagnosis very strongly, especially if it's a self-diagnosis and not given by something else. Also, I think sometimes the holding on strongly can also hinder the next step of progression as well. I have, um, I, I've seen a case study where as an adult, he got, um, the person got diagnosed with ADHD. So he will explain to you know people around him all the time, like, oh, I got ADHD, which is why I'm butting into a conversation all the time. Oh, uh, I got ADHD, which is why when you tell me things, I'll forget next moment. Uh, and in the end, I had to have a very frank conversation with him. It's like, well, what does ADHD mean to you? And it's like, oh, as a psychiatrist, do not understand what ADHD is. It's like, I understand what ADHD is, but what does it mean to you? What, what does it actually offer you in a sense? You know, it, it's 
good that you have the diagnosis that give you a sense of relief and you're understanding what's going on in your life. But at the same time, we have to move beyond that point because we have to help you in the best way that you can start living your life. If you are a child that I was looking after in the, you know, the child adolescent or camp service, then I'll say, oh, we can give you a specialist educational need um, department to help. It's called SEN, I think, now, nowadays in, in, in school, a lot of the normal school. Uh, we can refer you to occupational health. We can start medication, so on and so forth. But in adults, actually, a lot of these pathways are not there. So as an adult who got diagnosed with ADHD, what does it mean? What adaptation can you do? How can you make life accessible or easy or happier for yourself? I think it's once we got the diagnosis, what next? I think sometimes it's what people can struggle with. And that, that for me is, so where do we get the diagnosis from? Is it a proper diagnosis or is it one that's just kind of like, look, it's so obvious I've got ADHD. I know numbers of people at the moment who say that at the moment, it's my ADHD. And I'm like, but you haven't even been checked out. You haven't had no, you've had no tests. You've had nothing whatsoever. And you're saying this. Um, so actually what we do is we start to get a. I think the important thing that I can see from our side, because the case study that I brought up, he has the diagnosis made by a medical professional. And yes, I think that part is very, very important because to find out exactly what's going on and to know that actually all the symptoms can be attributed to the right thing is very important. But then what next in the, in the next part is to understand because of this diagnosis, what can you do for yourself? I think is really important. Sorry, Colin, I was filling in as you get ready. Yeah, sorry. I was, I was, I was discussing sort of this collective symptoms and also all collective diagnosis. So almost creating a blanket diagnosis and a blanket set of symptoms. But with those, what we start to get is we start to get numbers of different exceptions that are put in place for people. So we're getting in place numbers of different, um, almost, I think, I think with ADHD, you get a disability allowance, don't you? Is there a, is this the case? That I have to say, I'm unsure. Yeah, I, I don't know. So please, please don't quote me on that. But it's, I think there is some kind of, with, with a number of these different diagnoses, you get special, you know, you know, if you're taking exams and you have dyslexia, you get extra time. So there becomes all this sort of different requirements where in one way, I think it's brilliant to have a diagnosis because we under, can understand more about ourselves. But in another way, what we're starting to get is we're starting to get so many different variables, huge numbers of variables that it becomes very, very difficult for everyone to interact with each other. It becomes quite hard, really, really hard because we need to take things into account. We need to take into account how each of us are and the situation that we're actually in. It's very difficult. It's like you coming from China and sitting there and, and having to translate in your mind and me having to take that into account as part of my interaction with you. I don't know if that's making any sense or is that just... No, you're just reminding me of the conversation we have recently about the directness of sometimes Chinese-speaking um, people because <laughs> we have, both have that experience where we're quite used to the 
British culture, let's say, and now speaking with colleagues who are um, from China or other parts of Asia, they, they seem to have a slightly different mannerism that, as you say, we just have to take into account. And sometimes I think it's very much the same as if you are meeting someone who has ADHD, autism, what does that, I don't want to say labor, but what does that diagnosis really mean in the interaction? Exactly. What what does it what does it mean with an interaction? What does it mean to the person? What does it mean to the other person? And how do we acknowledge and respect those diagnoses as part of those interactions that we're having? Yeah, and in, I think one way, in one way, I think it can be very, very helpful, really helpful. But in another way, it can actually increase the barrier between human beings especially yeah, when people are very sensitive about their diagnosis i was going to say i um originally that's the design the design of diagnosis of especially disorder is just a collection of symptoms that tend to happen together so for mm -hmm. one human being to another easy to understand what do they mean when they say let's just say hypothyroidism you know if you talk to one medics or one patient to another or one family member to another they understand what you're talking about that's the purpose of diagnosis the labeling itself is to for ease of communication i think sometimes it's when as you said there are other things attached to that labels when there are say desire or their imaginations there are shame guilt whatever the emotion attached to it then that label can become a barrier not only to outside outward interaction also inward i have a number of patients that case study i just mentioned included that with the adhd but sometimes it can be depression sometimes it can be anxiety sometimes it can be schizophrenia uh, i'm a psychiatrist at the moment so these are the examples i have these are the labels that they use. Oh, that's why I can't get out. That's why I can't, you know, get a job. That's why I can't do this. That's why I can't do that. Sometimes individually, that is true. But also at the same time, I have to say, I've seen numbers of case study, number of patients who lead a very successful life, who, despite the fact that they have schizophrenia, despite the fact that they have depression or anxiety, whatever it may be. So it, the label itself doesn't necessarily be, automatically become barrier for us to carry on, but sometimes how we kind of use the label per se. Who we actually think we are, really. So if I just start to recap on the ideas that are being presented here. The first idea is that we, we've got this the capacity to ourselves to understand that there's something not quite right. And I think that's the thing. First thing is that I have a feeling that something's not quite right. Is that a real feeling or is it imagination? Or is it that actually it's something else. So I, I, I've got this kind of first step with regard to this. There's an experience. I have an experience of something. And then what I tend to do is I tend to look for sources. And the sources that we're looking for are kind of interesting sources. We we, we, we tend to Google. Everyone tends to Google everything. Um, you know, they do. They, they start at that point. Very rarely do and, and people tend to ask advice from other people as well have you noticed that oh that, that, that my, my hip seems to be hurting what do you think it is 
especially me in a party. I have that number of times. It's very interesting, actually. The the, the thing is, is uh, um, I had a, a case study recently where this person, this tennis player, professional tennis player, had a, had a problem with the hip. And many people were saying it was this thing, it was this thing, it was this thing, it was this thing. And they was, he was given all these different exercises to do. And I was asked as part of this. And the first thing I said is, I, I said, I cannot see inside this person to understand what's going on. When we have a scan, I'll be able to know exactly what to do. But until then, I don't know. And I found that really kind of relieving to say that. But even though many other people were giving all these different exercises and exercises and exercises, for me, it, it means that actually, how can we see inside something to diagnose? We've got to be able to really get to the bottom of it in a, in a proper way. So quite often scanning things, going for a scan, will give us a clear answer about what's going on. You know, quite often when they and I used to do a lot with spinal conditions and, you know, we'll see scans of spines and someone will just go, I feel a mild discomfort. And you'll see a scan and, and actually there's just an obliterated disc, like it's not there at all. And you're like, you feel just a minor discomfort. They're like, yeah, just minor. Then someone else, you'll see a scan and they'll be like, you, you'll look at it and you'll go, I can't see anything. But they'll be like, oh, my back's in so much pain. It's so much pain. It's so much pain. In both cases, the diagnosis is very useful. It's really helped us to understand the structure of what's going on. Whereas if they both self-diagnosed, like the, the guy who is discompliterated, he'd be like, oh, there's nothing in my back. It's a little bit, but it's okay. It's just an accident. It was completely okay. And the other person is like, you know what? My discs have all been shot. They've got, I've got this, I've got that, I've got the other. We just don't know. We don't know until we really, really get into it. So in one way, we know that something's wrong. But in another way, we really need to discover much, much, much more. And so if I'm starting to sort of build up what we're discussing, as we begin to discuss the parameters of interaction that we're having with ourselves and how we face ourselves and the reality of ourselves. And the second thing is how we deal with the fear that we feel when we're being threatened, our body's being threatened, our mind is being threatened, our emotions are being threatened, our existence is being threatened. And how we face that or avoid it, or we deny it, or we kind of, there's one of the strangest things is that I had a relative of mine who had a number of heart attacks and um, was feeling a bit kind of queasy and was booked in to have a stent done, but also had a, a an eye operation that needed to happen, lasering in the eyes. And so instead of doing the stent operation, decided to have the um, eye operation. And so swapped the dates for the stent operation to the eye operation. But before the eye operation could happen, had a heart attack and died. And because they said, well, actually, I don't need the stent operation. It's completely okay. Very sorry about your relative. And I was just going to make the same point, which is, um, I know it's very hard, especially when you already have a kind of this feeling that something is not quite right. It's, you know, you're already fearful and worried and anxious. But also, I would urge people to try to be a bit more 
mindful what they bring in, like what emotion they bring into the relationship as well. Because again, as a, as a doctor, sometimes I get asked second opinion quite often, uh, quite regularly. Um, I previously, as you said, I worked in obstetric and I'll have people calling me because they got admitted for certain things. Like, can you give me some a second opinion? I was like, I would love to be able to, and I can answer small, you know, simple questions such as like, why, why is this antibiotics given or why is the steroid injection given? But sometimes when it comes to question, like, are they doing the right thing? Is this the right option and things like that? I will very often say, actually, I don't think it will be fair for me to answer because it won't be fair on your medical team because they are the one who is looking after you, who have all the information, who have all the scans or the blood tests, who have seen you and examined you personally. I think it won't be fair for me to make a judgment on their plan remotely just through a telephone call. And also at the same time, I don't think it's fair on me to be put into that position, unfortunately. And also it won't be fair for her because anything I said may not be the most objective because I don't know, I don't have all the information. So I think unfortunately, usually in those conversations, I have to say it's just an unfair situation or condition that I, I unfortunately can't comment. And I really do understand the urge to have a second opinion and ask around to have the reassurance. But I think sometimes it's to, I will almost say, instead of outsourcing your anxiety and, and fear to like a friend and family, to a doctor that you know, to go to internet, maybe it's also quite good to bring it back into the relationship just to ask more questions to the healthcare professional or whichever professional you are who, who are looking after you. I'm worried about this. I'm unsure about that. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Because sometimes that, we, you know, you can have a lot of your questions, anxiety resolved and answered. Hmm. You, you've, you've hit on a number of things here. The, the first is second opinion. And almost second opinions are quite interesting because we someone tells us something and it doesn't sit right with us. It doesn't sit right with us in a couple of ways. The first way is that it, no, that can't be me. You know, I can't have this, this and this. I need to get a second opinion on it straight away. You know, I don't trust that because the next thing is that with a second opinion is that we know that deep down inside us, there's a kind of a knowing that we, there's more to discover. And so we actually need some additional help with regard to things. So for me, second opinions are, they fall into these kind of different areas. That's what I really like. But the interesting word you used was reassurance, is that quite often we need reassurance as part of our journey to be aware of ourselves and to discover what's going on with us, whether that's physically, whether it's mentally, whether it's emotionally. And so this reassurance can come in many different ways shapes and forms so i think the reassurance that we seek i'm going to come back to your original point which is sometimes we have to keep investigating ourselves like what 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 is the symptoms that we're actually experiencing what's going on sometimes we can infer and talk to medical professionals sometimes we can google simple things but ultimately it's kind of almost keeping an open mind just to hear and feel what is happening right so it's it's, it's so actually there's a number of reasons um we self-diagnose because we need to know what's going on we self-diagnose because someone else can't actually help us we self-diagnose because we don't trust others and we're frightened to go 
to a source. So we want to look up before we trouble other people. You know, we want to, so there's numbers of different reasons why we actually self-diagnose. So it comes, there's a lot of stuff within the character of a person. Either what happens is that I don't want to create any trouble. So I need to know whether it's okay. Or sometimes we're self-diagnosing because actually we want to be armed with something when we actually sit down in a chair with someone. So there becomes a lot of different reasons around this. And do we trust other people in the same way that we have done in the past? And how, when we're looking at diagnosis, are we trusting or are we disbelieving? Yes. I think I think the trusting the relationship would be a very important thing. And unfortunately, it's also something that needs time to build. And perhaps in the current medical system is not the easiest to build on at the same time. Um, I remember I was talking to one of my senior colleagues um, recently about um, care for certain types of patient or certain patient, a patient with certain diagnosis, such as like personality disorder, where inherently there may be instability where you need a lot of trust in the system, actually relies very much on the clinician-patient relationship where you have to have a repeated encounters, you have to have a lot of um, discussion, understanding of each other where, you know, the point of treatments when actually we can, you know, hold the other person, how to hold the other person. But unfortunately, as for example, right now I'm a junior doctor, which means I rotate through different placement, different job every few months or sometimes every year. But that can be very difficult because sometimes a lot of times it means patient coming to the healthcare system, seeing different professionals every single time, different nurses, diff different care coordinators, different doctors, different social workers even. And it's, I, I also understand how the trust parts of the relationship can get or seemingly get harder. So, so there is a place for self-diagnosis. For me, it's more in a physical realm. I think that we need much more help with regard to diagnosis when there's deeper mental and emotional problems. I think that in that area, to put a label on or to diagnose oneself, I think is, 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 is a mistake. Because I don't think things are as straightforward as we think they are. But with physical, I think that the use of AI, the use of um, computer-based modeling and decision-making is, is really helpful. It really, you know, it tells you just, you know, it's, it's something to worry about. Go and see someone straight away. You need to do it now. It's just, it helps with regard to the motivation of the process that you need to do. So I think it is very useful in that way. I also think that it saves a little time and takes pressure off different systems. So I think that's also very important as well, because actually it, it provides that kind of that level of interaction that's actually needed just to begin to point people in the right direction. You know, do I go in this direction or this direction? Do I go and see my GP or do I go straight to A&E? You know what? What's the what's the route that I need to take? And I think that becomes important with regards to self diagnosis. I also think that self diagnosis can help you to explore the whole area 
that you're dealing with. So let's say, you know, you take something like, again, like a, like a flu or a cough, is that in one way you, you might say, well, you need to go and see someone very quickly so that you don't get pneumonia. That's fantastic. But what else could you be doing? You know, there, there, there can be other things that we could be doing as part of this. And it helps you to explore these other areas once you've got a diagnosis, other areas that are complementary to an approach that you take for your situation. So I think that's also useful as well. So I think that it's an area which has got a sort of a, a band, I would say, of health within it, self-diagnosing. But I also think that on the edges, it's also got some unhealthy aspects to it as well. And that's my feeling with regard to it. What's yours? I was just going to be lazy and say, can't, can't sum, it, sum it up any better than myself. Um, but I, I think I think you're hitting the nail on the head, which is finding the right relationship within the process of self-diagnosing is most important. Sometimes technology can really help, like a scan, as you said, you know, can really give you a lot of information. Then, you know, whatever self-diagnosis or form diagnosis you want to get from that will be the most correct one because you have the physical fact. Sometimes technology may not be the most helpful, like the symptom checker that we have. Yes, it may provide the right information, but at the same time, it can give you a lot of anxiety-provoking diagnosis that may not be true. Um, the internet has a very fast, wide range of information now, then they are really helpful because you can actually get a whole medical textbook on it. But actually reading them correctly will be quite difficult at the same time. I have the example where I think during the pandemic, someone sent around a paper saying how wearing masks long term can be problematic. It's 42 page long and has 178 reference. It took me about half a day to read through the whole thing. And yes, although it makes a valid point, some part of it actually wasn't too relevant to the general population. But that is the information that's freely available online, where if it takes you know half day for doctors to read, uh, it will be very hard to digest by the general public. And sometimes it's just have to be more caution. Same as people that you meet and you ask about your symptoms, it's good and well that you ask another person who have psychosis which actually at the moment is what's happening one of my patients asked around to another his friend who also has psychosis apparently her treatment regime is different can he try the same thing it's like well yes it may be good and well that it's working for her but we can't just make the assumption that it work for you because you're different people you're different gender you're different age you have different situation and scenario so i think it's finding the right level of interaction with the tool is the most important and just like the interaction with healthcare profession, blind faith is not recommended, but at the same time, I, I think too much anxiety and fear will also not be helpful. I couldn't agree with you more with what you said. I, I think it's a, we are all very different. And I think this generalization, and I'm sorry if it, I, I communicated it poorly before, this kind of generalization, this blanket of generalization of diagnosis on a kind of a collective, and then the differences that we have with regard to this and how we perceive those differences and the effects those have and how we value those or other people don't value those, it causes more and more problems, really does. Yeah. Stan, it's really good to talk to you this evening.
You too. And can't wait for the next one. Neither can I. <laughs> Thank you everyone else for joining as well. Hopefully we get to see you again very soon. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, everyone.